morning. You know, I have a friend who, uh, for many years, he was the uh, station manager of uh, Malaysian Airlines in, uh, I think it was in France or for a few years, and then he was in Brussels for a few years. So he's, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord now. He, he died quite young of a, of a heart failure somewhere in London, I think. But uh, I remember that when we meet up from time to time, he would always tell me that, you know, I've been worshipping in all the churches in so many parts of the world, and he says, I have learned to worship God in all sorts of churches, small churches, little churches, huge churches, loud churches, uh, quiet churches. He says, it is not a problem for me uh, that whatever church I go to, I can just worship the Lord. It's just me and the Lord and the people who are with me. It doesn't matter what the building looks like. It doesn't matter whether the numbers are big or small. And I, you know, I thought this man is, is, is right. He, he is right. Uh, it's just not about anything else at all. It's about the reality of God. If God is real, we should be able to worship him regardless of where we find ourselves in, regardless of our emotions, regardless of what we've been through. If God is God, he is mighty. He is worthy of our worship. So I'm glad that, you know, we're just here this morning in this very simple place. There are parts of Africa where the church is. It's nowhere like this even. It's just just a hut, just a shelter. And they're worshiping God with, you know, all their exuberance and all their might and with all their honesty and with all their humility. It's really about that. So I'm just glad we are able to have a shelter over our heads here this morning. We're going through the book of First Peters. We're going through book by book by book. We're going through the book of First Peters uh, in, at this time in the life of our church. And uh, it has been a book that has spoken to many of us. Because this book, as I've said many, many times, this book was written at a time when people were under great persecution. Uh, the Christians suffered greatly in the hands of the Romans. And so this book was written to encourage them to walk strong in the faith. So I'd like to ask if uh, Emily, <laughs> would you like to come and read First Peter for us? First Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Thank you. 
Shall we just ask God's blessing upon us as we hear His word? Lord, open up the meaning of your word for us, we pray. Speak to us. Speak into our minds, speak into our hearts, we pray. That we may hear you, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder whether sometimes you have reflected over the fact that we human beings are amazing creatures. Of all creatures that God has made, the human person is indeed a very amazing creature that God has created. Uh, I'm sure you have watched documentaries on TV on, on the human eye or the human brain. It's just amazing how the organs are just put together so intricately, so beautifully, and, so, and functions so well. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the fact of vision, the fact of hearing, the fact of taste, movement, they're just incredible the way they're put together. And the capacity for emotion, the capacity for love, the capacity for hatred, for gratitude, uh, you know, for kindness and gentleness, tenderness, it's just all in the human heart. It's just amazing the way that God wired us together. I believe that God created the most amazing creature when God created a human person. Because animals are not made in the image of God. Only humans are made in the image of God. And so if you think about it a little longer, if you think about it a little deeper, you'll be stunned by the fact that by God's grace, you and I have the potential of becoming a staggeringly astonishing creature of great glory. It just befuddles me. When I think about it this week, I thought, wow, I'm a sinner. I'm not holy. And yet I can have the potential within me, by the grace of God, to become a staggeringly, breathtakingly beautiful creature. It's just amazing that God should create us this way. But because you're a creature who is capable of breathtaking, stupendous glory, you're also a creature who is capable of sinking into the depth of depravity and sinfulness. And uh, just as you can become so glorious, you can also become very beggarly and glib and wicked and violent. It's all within the human person. So the question is this. The Bible tells us everywhere, some of you will end up like that, and some of you will end up depraved. So the question is this. The question is, how is it for some people, they become creatures of great glory, of nobility, of decency, of humility, of love? And how is it that some people end up so wicked, so vile, so violent, so glib, What's happened here? Well, the Bible tells us that whether you turn out to be glorious or whether you turn out to be depraved very much depends on your knowledge of who you are and what's your purpose on this earth. We're here just for a short while. There is a purpose for you to be here. If you discover your purpose, that is when you can grow to be someone that God has created you to be. So purpose is everything. Purpose is everything, really. Remember Jeremiah? 
when Jeremiah was born or even before he was born, God comes to Jeremiah and God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet. So Jeremiah wasn't an afterthought. Jeremiah was a forethought. But the amazing thing is this. Not only is Jeremiah prepared by the Lord, you and I were all prepared by the Lord before we were born from our mother's womb for a special purpose that he has for each one of us. So if it is true that purpose is everything, then what's my purpose for being on this earth? Why am I here? Who am I? Why does God put me on this earth for some 80, 90 years or whatever he gives me? Until you discover your purpose, you will just merely be existing. You wouldn't be living. One very successful man wrote these words, and I quote. He says, as you know, I have been very fortunate in my career, and I have made a lot of money, far more than I ever dreamed of, far more than I could ever spend, far more than my family needs. To be honest, he goes on to say, one of my motives for making so much money was simple, to have the money to hire people to do the things that I don't like doing. But there is one thing I have never been able to hire anyone to do for me, and that is find my sense of purpose. And then he adds this word. He says, I would give anything to discover that. See, here's a rich man. He's got everything. But he's pining because he hasn't got the sense of purpose. He doesn't know what he's here for. You may have wealth, you may have power, you may have knowledge, but until you discover your purpose, you'll just be existing, really. Walker Pale Percy says, you can get all A's and flunk life. And Os Guinness says, we have too much to live with, too little to live for. And he's right. He's right. We have too much to live with, but too little to live for. It is only when you know God's purpose for you that you can come alive with a sense of meaning and purpose. So the greatest one single thing you should do for yourself and I should do for myself is discover our purpose. Now, if this matter of identity and purpose is vital for you and for me, we must remember that, first of all, it was vital for the people who were the first people to receive this letter. This whole question about identity and purpose, if it is important for us, it was first important for them. They were the first to receive this letter from Peter. Now, I've said this virtually every single Sunday when I come up here. I've always told you that the people who read this letter, boy, their lives hung on a slender thread. They could just be slaughtered any time because the Romans were coming for them. Their lives hang on a balance. They were systematically persecuted by the Romans. And people around them, they looked at them with cynicism, uh, with hostility. They were accused. The Christians were accused of deviant practices that they were never true. Here are some of the things they were accused for. One of them, because they celebrated the Holy Communion and because they called the Holy Communion love feasts, they were accused of sexual orgies, they were accused of cannibalism, 
uh, you know, people, the talk went around the town that they were eating the body and drinking the blood of this man of Nazareth. But there was one more accusation that was very serious, and that is this, that the Christians disrupted the peace of the Roman Empire, that the Christians were disloyal to the emperor, that they defied authority, that they propagated unlawful practices, that they defamed the gods. As a result, many Christians were put to death. Many of them were fed to the lions in the arena, and many of them were just killed and torched and set on fire to light the parties that went on in the evening and sporting events. You could die any day if you were a Christian living in that time. And so Peter picks up his pen and he writes this letter to them to encourage them to say you need to know who you are. You need to know what your purpose is. If you do know who you are, you do know your purpose is, you can get through this. Even if you die, it's okay. You can get through this. So here he's going to give them a list of purposes. And if your Bible is open with you, it's all in verse 9. A whole list of them. I just want to go through very briefly, and I'll go through the other part of what I thought is important for us this morning. First of all, Peter says to them, you are a chosen race. You see that, verse 9? You are a chosen race. Now, he's not, he's not referring to any ethnic racial group. The chosen race is not Ugandans, it's not Nigerian, it's not Mongolians, it's not Irish, it's not Canadian, it's not Vietnamese, it's not Mexican. It's not a race of people on earth. It's a spiritual race of people from all tribes and all nations, whether black or white, whether yellow or brown, this chosen race comprises people from all tribes and nations, all ethnic groups and all cultural groups. It's a special spiritual race that put together by God. And so Peter says, you are a chosen race. Don't worry. Don't be despair. God has chosen you. We have not chosen God. Which one of us will choose God? God has chosen us, set his love on us. So first thing, you're a chosen race. Second, verse 9 again, you are God's own possession. Look at verse 10. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Now in what sense are you God's possession? Are you God's possession in the sense that everyone is God's possession? Simply because God owns everything? No, 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 no. Peter is not thinking that you are possess God's possession simply because God owns you by virtue of the fact that God owns everything. Peter says you are God's possession in the sense that God deems you very precious, the apple of his eye. He says in verse 10, in the past you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you're God's Possession in the sense that God has set his eyes on you. God loves you. In that sense, you are his possession. Thirdly, verse 9 again, you are a holy nation. Now, I wonder how many of you this morning think that you are holy. I don't for a minute think that I'm holy. But you know something? If you're a Christian, you are holy. You may not be practically holy right this minute, and many of us are not, 
you may not be actual, practically holy, but positionally you are holy. If you are in Christ, you are holy. Because your position in Christ makes you eternally safe, eternally righteous, eternally holy. So if you have been delivered from the domain of darkness, you are holy. If you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, you are holy. Colossians 1.13 So you are holy in the sense that you are being set apart, separated from everyone else. In that sense, you are holy. Now this is the reason why Peter calls them sojourners, verse 11. You are pilgrims. You are temporary residents. You are not permanent residents. Now the one thing that will help them to be holy is to know that they are just pilgrims. They are just passing through. Many of us live our lives as if we are going to be here on this earth forever. Many of us plan our lives as if we are going to be here forever. You know the Australian Aborigines, The Australian Aborigines have a saying. They like to say, tread lightly on this earth. I like that. When you go on this earth, tread very lightly. Just just don't get too settled on this earth. Calvin says we are only guests in this world. Now, if you're a guest, if you're traveling, you pack your bags very lightly, don't you? (laughs) Which one of us travel with heavy luggage? We don't. So we're traveling through this earth. So why are we packing ourselves so heavily? Uh, We need to be aware of the fact that because we are pilgrims, all the more we must not allow the flesh to war against our soul. Verse 11, do not allow the fleshy lusts to war against the soul. So one, you're a chosen nation. Two, you're God's own possession. Three, you're holy. Now number four, you are a royal priesthood. Now it takes a long time to understand this. How, what does the Bible mean when it says that you are priests? All of you are priests. Have you ever noticed that the priest is always turning his back on you? When you go to a temple... If this were a temple, all right, if I was the priest, my back would be turned on you because I'll be praying. Is the priest being rude? Is the priest being arrogant? On the contrary, it's just the opposite. It is because he cares for you, that he's thinking about you, that he's praying for you. He's standing in your shoes. He's serving as your advocate. He's praying for you to God. He's like a person who mediates between you and God. And Peter says, all of you are priests. To those who are suffering, to those who are going through persecution. He says, you need to pray for your persecutors because you're priests. Yes, they are violent to you. Yes, they are unkind to you. Yes, they are very cruel to you. But pray for them. You're a priest. Pray for them. You know, it's a very sobering thought. If, in fact, it's an irony that people who work for the poor don't pray for them because many of them don't have a God to pray to. And, those of us, some, and some of us who pray for the poor don't work for them. We don't touch them at all. We pray from a distance. As priests, we need to both pray and get our hands dirtied to serve the poor. So we are all that. Peter says to them, yes, you might be persecuted, but I'm going to remind you who you are. You are all this. 
be encouraged, he says to them. Go out and get your job done because you have such great privileges. If this is who you are, if you're a chosen race, if you're God's own possession, if you're a holy nation, if you're a royal priesthood, get your hands dirtied. Work for the poor. Work for those who slice you. Work for those who kill you. Work for those who try to persecute you. Now, in the very next breath, he is going to tell them now what their purpose is on this earth. He says, now that you're all privileged like that, what's your purpose? You do have a purpose. So what's that purpose that Peter wants them to know? How are they to live in this world that is so cruel to them? What are they to do? How are they to live in the Roman world when their lives just hung on the balance, when they could be killed any day? If that was how God has gifted them, how are they to live? You know, as Christians, we have failed in how to live in this world. We have never seemed to be able to relate to the world. We made two mistakes. Either we are over-absorbed with the world, or we shut the world out, and we go away and hide ourselves. There are three ways in which we have failed. There are three ways in which we have failed to relate to the world. And those are the ways we usually relate to the world. First of all, some of us think that we should withdraw totally from the world. We think we should shut ourselves up. So we weave a cocoon. We weave a cocoon around us, and we stay inside the cocoon so that we might be sheltered from this world. We, uh, we adopt a kind of an attitude that says, keep the good guys in and keep the bad guys out. But Jesus says you are not to live like that. That's not the way to live, to keep the good guys in and the bad guys out. Jesus says that's not the way you should live. You know something? The days when a non-Christian will walk into church and to look for God is almost over now. They don't come in here. You've got to go out there. And if you weave a cocoon around you, you're never going to win the world for Christ. So that's the first mistake, cocooning. That's the second mistake that Christians do when they relate to the world. They become combative. They're very militaristic. They're very violent. They adopt a hostile attitude, us versus them. And so they fight the non-Christians. They're, they're contentious. They're antagonistic in their stance against the world. Jesus says that's not the approach. The approach is love, not hatred. So that's the second way. Don't be combative. So the first way, don't be cocooning yourself. Second way, don't be combative. There is a third way, there is a wrong way that Christians adopt, and that is they compromise with the world. They become so much like the world that there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians. No difference. They walk like non-Christians. They talk like non-Christians. They watch the same things as non-Christians watch. They're just as consumeristic as non-Christians. They're just as selfish as non-Christians. They're just as unkind, cruel as all the others. They have compromised too much. 
And all those are not ways in which we should shape the world. So all those three are ways we should not adopt. We're not supposed to be into cocooning. We're not supposed into combating. We're not supposed into conforming. What then is the right way to relate to the world? If we are here on this earth to impact the world for Jesus, what then is the right way? How should we act? Jesus said it long, long ago. Be salt and light to the world. Very simple. Be salt and be light. Now, you know what salt is? N-A-C-L, I think, if I still remember my chemistry, sodium chloride. Simple substance in those days without refrigeration. People keep meat from going bad by rubbing salt on it. And Jesus wants us to salt the world, to prevent the world from getting rotten. With regards to light, think about it. The cruelest punishment any political prisoner could be subjected to is to be put in solitary confinement. You know what that is? It is to be removed completely from any source of light. Total jet black darkness. Not just for one day, not just for one week, but for months and months and months. You just don't see the light at all. Total darkness. You know something? You would not just be seriously getting vertigo. You will go stark staring mad because you will have no bearings. You will have no orientation. You will have no perspective. So if salt prevents putrefaction, light prevents disintegration. See how wise Jesus is? Your salt and your light. You prevent the world from decaying and you protect the world from disintegration. I want to talk a little bit more about light because this is important. Why does Jesus get us to be light of the world? You know why? Because light shows things out from what they are. I'll say that again. Light shows things out for what they are. If I go into the wardrobe to pick a, a jersey, and I can't tell in my jersey, in, in my wardrobe, I can't tell if this is blue or dark. I can't tell. But I take it to the light, to the window. Immediately I know the color of my jersey because light shows things out for what they really, really are. Jesus is saying, be light to your community. Show things up for what they are. You know, if you're a good Christian, if you're a humble Christian, if you're a loving Christian, you know something? In your workplace, you will show Jesus out for who he is without saying a word. Without saying a word. Just being a good Christian, light shows it out light reveals so sometimes you walk into your office quite suddenly people stop saying the things they have been saying because you've just walked in have you said anything no you haven't said a word but because they know you are light light shows out their gossiping their pride their racism their greed their lust it shows them out 
Have you never been apologized to? I wonder whether you have. Have you never been apologized to by someone in your workplace for using the swear word in front of you? Because they know you're different. They know you're different. So as soon as that word comes out, they are, sorry, I didn't realize you were here. What's happened? Light has shined in a dark world, and they realize that that is not right. That is wrong. Light cannot not reveal. Light must reveal. So we are to be light to the world. Okay, if that's light, what is salt? Salt brings gladness to human heart, (laughs) doesn't it? Salt. When salt is absent, immediately you reach out for the salt shaker. You know that. The moment salt is absent, you know it. I know it. We all know it. We all stand up together to reach for the salt shaker. (laughs) We can't stand anything bland. We can't stand anything tasteless. And this is what Jesus wants you to be. He wants you to be in your community a savoring, spicing agent so that things become tasty, beautiful, relishing, and savoring. You bring zest and tang to the place that is bland and insipid and stale. All the more as this world is getting darker and darker, getting more drab, you know, it's very hard to bring up children in this world. What is this world going to be 50 years from now? What is this world going to be when your baby is a teenager? Sometimes it's quite scary to think about what this world has become. It's becoming drab and dingy, and God is wanting us to bring out what is alluring, what is graceful, what is tender, what is admirable, what is praiseworthy, what is lovely, what is pleasant. God wants us to do that. In the midst of an unbelieving people, you are to exhibit the beauty of Jesus and the joy and the truth of Jesus. So this is what verse 12 is saying. All right. If we are to be all this, okay? I'm going to make a turn in my sermon now, and I'm on my home stretch now. The point is this. If we are to be all this, how do we do it? Where do we start? What do we do? The answer is in verse 12. The answer is right here in verse 12. Before we go there, you know the amazing thing about the early church? The early Christians, I'm not sure when they received this letter by James on what sort of papyrus was it written on, but soon as they got this letter from Peter, they got all so excited. They all read it, they went out, and they practiced exactly what Peter says, to be light and to be salt. And they, did, they took this whole teaching to heart, and they turned an ugly, violent world into the world for Jesus. You know, it's incredible that this church didn't have anything to start with. It was a primitive church. It, there's no great building There's no great sound system. There's no great instruments. They were just a small little group of people, and yet they exploded exponentially into existence. It's incredible that the early church had very little to start with. They were just a small group of people. It is remarkable that by the time of Constantine, the Roman Empire, 
without any political, social, or uh, economic leverage, Christians so impacted the Roman emperor, uh, Empire that by the year 300 AD, 60%, 60% of the Roman Empire became Christians. How did you do it? What's the percentage of Christians in New Zealand? 2%. 2% of New Zealanders are Christians. And this is the Roman world. Within 300 years, 60% converted from Roman paganism to the religion of Jesus Christ. The question is this. They had everything pitted against them. They had everything thrown at them. And yet, they succeeded. Historians tell us that there are altogether seven factors that contributed to this. Now, I have done no time this morning to go through all of them, and I shall not try. But I just want to say two things. The first thing is this. It's crucial for us to hear this. This is one of the factors why there was such a great conversion. Listen to this. The Roman world practiced the killing of infant baby girls. Every time they had a baby girl, they got those baby girls killed, thrown into forests, thrown into beaches, left to die, just like that. Now, not only that, the procedure for aborting little baby girls was so primitive and so dangerous with the result that many mothers were killed during the process of abortion or simply left infertile for the rest of their lives. So there came a point where in the Roman Empire there was just a sheer lack of marriageable young women for Roman men. You know where I'm going, I'm sure. Why? Because the Christians in their midst, they weren't aborting their infant girls. Not only that, Christian mothers and fathers at their own expense, would go deep into the forest to pick up these aborted girls or these this abandoned girls. They would go to the beaches and they would pick up these little baby girls and they would, they would disciple them, they would raise them to be young Christian women. Now, as the Roman men came of age, as more and more Roman men came of age, there was just no women for them to marry except Christian women. And Christian families would never allow the Roman men to marry their girls unless they convert. But you know something? They didn't convert just by name. They truly became converted because these Christian girls loved them, cared for them, were kind to them, served them, taught them the ways of the Lord. So they became real Christians. You know, in the next two generations, the whole population changed because of their kindness and their goodness. That's the first factor. The second factor is this. In the early Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was struck by many severe, deathly plagues. One of them, called the Plague of Cyprian, for example, was so severe, it killed 5,000 citizens a day alone in Rome. Now, when these plagues hit the cities, everybody fled from the cities to the hills so that they may not contract these plagues. But the Christians remained behind. The Christians remained behind to help those 
who suffered the plague, to care for them, to bring them into healing again. And many died in the process, but they didn't mind because they believed in heaven. They believed they would go to heaven and when, they are di- when they are dead. So they didn't mind caring for these people. Now, you know something? When the plagues ended and people start coming back to the cities, they hear stories after stories after stories of how the Christians remain behind, sacrifice their life to help them, and many were converted. So these are just two of the seven factors how the whole Roman world became converted into the Christian world. Now, this is the purpose for why we exist. This is why we're in Palmerston North. This is why we're put here in this city. We're put here to be salt, to be light, that people may see Christ and come to him. So by sheer Christian grace, paganism ran out of steam. Paganism simply ran out of steam. Uh, the, the emperor's program failed. Uh, the cross polytheism of Rome became bankrupt. This is God's purpose for you. If I have to bring all this to a close with one word, it'll have to be this word. Witness bearing. That's our purpose. Our purpose in this world is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus died for our sins so that we may be healed from our sins, to be salt and to be light. You know something? Whether you realize it or not, you are all walking advertisements for the gospel. Did you not know that? Whether you like it or not, you are daily walking advertisements for the gospel. People out there may not read the Bible, but they read you. People who do not read the Bible, they are reading you, they are watching you, they are hearing you. And by who you are and what you say, you bring the beauty of Jesus into this world. One of the saddest things that people can say of Christians is this. And this is one of the saddest things that people can say of Christians. It is this. Who you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you say. Do you hear that? Who you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. So we're trying to say much for Jesus. They can't hear that. Because who we are speaks louder than our words. So let's heed these words that Peter wrote to people in that time. We're not much different. Our time is hard. Paganism is on the rise. Christianity is on the decline. We need to be witness-bearing in our life, in our words, for Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for these simple words from First Peter. Lord, we ask for forgiveness because we have not lived like that. We have packed our bags too heavily, thinking that we're going to be here on this earth for a long time. We forget that we're just traveling. We're just passing through. And people who travel pack their bags lightly. And like the Aboriginal uh, proverb says, tread lightly on this earth. Lord, help us to tread lightly on this earth. Help us to do what is needful. Help us to only have what is needful. But help us to be witness bearers. 
Help us to live our lives in such a way that those who see us can see Jesus in us. Lord, strengthen us to live like that.